week when I was preparing to write this sermon, for whatever reason, I ended up on the Gospel Coalition's website, and an article caught my eye, one completely unrelated to anything that I was doing, which is typically how it goes, Best Movies of 2023. Curious, I found myself reading through the list, and um, we had a top 10, top 10 movies of the year, and some honorable mentions. And then his final section in that article was 10 excellent documentaries. And for whatever reason, and now I know that God had a plan for this, but the first documentary in that list is called 20 Days in Mariupol. And I want to put out a disclaimer that I am not at least overtly recommending that you watch this documentary. There is very strong language, and what you will see will stick with you. It is a frontline documentary made by the, a Ukrainian member of the Associated Press, who was a journalist who was in the Ukraine when the first invasion of the Ukraine was about to happen, and he had determined, rather than fleeing like most, that he would stay behind and document what it was that he was seeing, particularly the siege of Mariupol, which was one of the first cities that was attacked. An hour and a half later, I found myself in my office weeping. I had just witnessed and been sickened by some of the even just a fraction of the wickedness of which man is capable. Children murdered, mass graves, hospitals bombed. And even after watching this, I just felt so wrong. I was stunned. And as tends to happen when you see things like this, there's this whirlpool of questions that go on inside of us. How would I have acted in this situation? Why would anyone do this? How do these people survive? And how could mankind become so wicked? We cannot afford to collectively or personally stick our heads in the sand. In our relatively peaceful, relatively easy, relatively isolated North American existence, sometimes we try to pretend that nothing is happening in the world, that wickedness is something that goes on out there and we reduce it to stats and numbers on a chart. But I hate to break it to you, but evil exists. Sin runs rampant in our world, and it exacts terrible consequences, consequences that people like the people of the Ukraine, the people of Israel and Palestine, these people are currently reaping the, the harvest of wickedness that has been sowed in our world. And we need to remember this. These moments in the world reminds us of the depth and the effect of sin. 
And if our faith, our personal faith, is to have any real effect on our lives or any meaningful consequences in the world, ours need to be a faith that acknowledges the wickedness and sin in the world around us, as well as the sin that is at work within us and the sin that we have been saved from. In our study through Genesis, or at least the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we just completed chapter 5. And here we had the opportunity to finish contrasting these two genealogies, the one of the wicked genealogy through Cain and the righteous genealogy through Seth. And the final member of that line of Seth that is mentioned is one with which we are all very familiar, that being Noah. In the first seven verses of chapter 6, we get the background that leads up to that moment that we all picture when we hear the name Noah, his big moment. But it tells us how we got there. How did we get to the total annihilation of all mankind, of every creeping thing on the earth, in a massive global flood? How did we get there? And the answer to that is the million-dollar answer when we come to this morning's passage. How did we get there? So I'd invite you to turn with me now to Genesis chapter 6, and we'll be looking at the first eight verses this morning. Again, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through to verse 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is God's word. And particularly in the beginning verses of this passage, we come to some pretty major head-scratching questions. Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of man? What is a Nephilim? And remember, the pattern that we have from Genesis so far is that it tends to throw us these curveballs and offers no further explanation. Cain had a wife. Where did she come from? The snake talked. Why did that not warrant a response of its own? 
Enoch died how? Or didn't die how? And ultimately, for Moses, as the Spirit-inspired author of this account, a further explanation of these details didn't further what he was inspired to communicate by God. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't or can't ask questions. Theological accuracy and biblical understanding are worthwhile pursuits in their own rights. But like I said, when we were looking at the genealogy of Seth culminating in Enoch and how he just simply ceased to exist, he was not. When we get to these passages, sometimes it's easy to lose the forest for the trees. So focused on what we view as these fantastic elements of the account that we lose, or even worse, never make it to the main point of the author in the passage. Don't get me wrong. By the inclusion of verses 1 to 4, we can infer that those details are worth recording and do have bearing on ours as well as the original audience's understanding of the passage. For we know that no words of Scripture are idle. Every word inspired in this book is breathed out by God profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. But what we have to be careful of is that we don't develop this tunnel vision, focusing on these details, particularly these details that are never really explained or elaborated upon. That being said, we're not going to ignore them. We're not going to in ignore these first four verses. So let's take a look at them again. And Lord willing, we will see what the Lord might be trying to communicate here. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So first up, sons of God and daughters of man. There are three main views when it comes to the identity of these sons of God, first being um, they are powerful and despotic human kings from the line of Cain who have achieved this near-mythical, near-deity status. Second main view is that these are angelic beings, particularly fallen angels, angels who have been evicted from heaven and they have come down to the daughters of men. The final option that we're going to spend more time on is that these sons of God are indeed human, that they are human men from the line of Seth. In the interest of time and keeping to the point of our passage, I'm not going to go through the depth of all of the details on these, and I would be happy to have coffee with you and explain kind of where I got to this 
by, but perhaps like me, your immediate assumption is the more interesting, more fantastic, maybe more publicized reading that is quite popular that these are fallen angels and their offspring are these Nephilim, these pre-flood giants, demi-angels, half-breeds, and abominations. But after my study, I don't think that that's the direction that this passage points. When I look at the context of our passage, that we are just coming out of the comparison of the godly line of Seth and the line of Cain, which was wicked, I believe that these sons of God are indeed God-fearing men and even leaders from the line of Seth. And quite regularly throughout Scripture, God's people are referred to as sons of God. Like I said, if you want further details as to how we got there, feel free to take me out for coffee or even drop me a message on email or Facebook and I will give you details. But Moses' purpose here is to highlight humanity's descent into wickedness. And starting down that path of wickedness, which ultimately culminates in God's judgment, we have these sons of God who saw the daughters of men and they took as their wives any they chose. These godly men follow the pattern of men like Lamech from the story of Cain, who took for himself at that time just two wives, now taking any they chose. And also, rather than pursuing and marrying righteous mates, the sons of God are tempted away by their own appetites to mix with the godless line of Cain. This theme of polygamy and mixing with the world becomes a recurring theme in the post-flood days. Think particularly of Solomon and his many wives who did not believe and who led him astray. But the first judgment here is the limiting of mankind's lifespan to a century and change rather than the near millennia of the previous mentioned fathers of humanity. And just as it was in the garden, this judgment is not immediately but progressively implemented on mankind. Our lifespans gradually leveling out to this new maximum of kind of that century plus. That's why after the flood we do see some of the patriarchs of the faith still do live a bit past 120, but nowhere near the 969 of Methuselah, and gradually we level out at this century or so. So next we deal with these Nephilim, mentioned in verse 4. Sometimes these have been attributed as the children of the sons of God and the daughters of men, particularly by those who would follow the angelic path on the sons of God. But the language here to me seems to say that these Nephilim were already on the earth, predating the unions of the sons of God and the daughters of men. And in some translations, you have to watch because Nephilim, which is just, the word Nephilim is just a transliteration of the Hebrew word. It's not translated there. But these Nephilim are sometimes translated in versions as giants. 
And that translation comes from the comparison that we have in Numbers 13, the only other use of the word Nephilim, as the panicked spies come back from scouting out the promised land. And they reported the many dangers of this land, including, quote, the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who have come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. So based on that one reference of these panicked spies, some translations have gone back to the Genesis account and called the, these Nephilim as giants. But even think of what the spies are saying here. The Nephilim, the sons of Anak who have come from the Nephilim, God wipes away all mankind and every creeping thing from the earth in the flood. So the giants that these spies see, or maybe they weren't even giants and they were just panicked at the sight of these strong men, but they are not the Nephilim, nor are they the descendants of the Nephilim, for the Nephilim were destroyed in the flood, just like all of the rest of the creeping things of the earth. But apparently the specter of these Nephilim, these wicked, mighty men of old, still lingered with the people of God long after the flood destroyed them. If you take and just translate the word Nephilim, it means the fallen ones. And given what is about to come in our passage, these fallen ones, likely these wicked rulers and warriors, they point us past the trees to the forest that we are meant to see. The state of the world in the days of Noah was this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Like I said, sometimes we can get distracted by the fantastic details. But regardless of how any of our interpretations come out as the sons of God and the daughters of men and the Nephilim, the result is the same. It's all pushing towards an understanding that the earth, the hearts of mankind, have become pervasively wicked. And as such, God now deals with them according to their wickedness. And this pervasive wickedness of the human heart is an ongoing theme throughout Scripture. Newsflash, the heart of man, mankind himself, if you're ever asked the question, is man generally good or generally evil? We as believers can, with authority, say mankind is generally and naturally wicked. Psalm 14, 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They all have, have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Whether pre-flood or post-flood, our human condition is the same. Even those who are accorded as being righteous, pleasing God, only manage to do so because of their faith in God. That's why when we have that hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11, 
it is their faith that is being lifted up there. It is their faith in God, not their own righteousness, for they too, these men and women that we would hold up as paragons, that Scripture holds up as paragons and examples to us, but they too are thoroughly and totally infected with the same sickness of sin as we are and as every wicked person ever has been. That is why there is no option of being good enough. There is no balancing of the scales at the end where God weighs your good deeds against your wicked ones. For the prophet Isaiah said, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Even as we talked about here around the Lord's table, to balance your life, even just take your life, perhaps you don't view yourself as particularly wicked, to balance your life would require a full life of perfect obedience to the commands of God. If you want to stand on the scales at the end of life and find a balance, you would have to balance your life with the perfect righteousness of another full life lived totally for God. And unless you have the ability to go back and relive your life perfectly, there is no balancing the scales. Only Christ and his righteousness which is applied to us by faith can balance those scales, can give us any kind of relief from the weight of sin that hangs over us. As it stood in Noah's day without Christ, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And that pervasive wickedness is what underlies the Lord's declaration in verses 6 and 7 of our passage. It says, The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Regarding that illustration I had earlier of this conflict in the Ukraine, we so often... When we see concrete examples of the wickedness of mankind, we're tempted to ask the question, how could a God who is good allow these things to happen? Why wouldn't he deal with such evildoers? The truth is, he did once. Once, God was so grieved to see what had become of mankind, the highest of his creative efforts, the wickedness that they had conceived, that he regretted making them in the first place. So much so that he determined to blot them out of existence. And as you can see, this is another one of those passages that's going to be a little difficult. Because when we look at terms like God regretted, we have to be careful because of what it could imply if we misunderstand it. 
when we read that God regretted that he made mankind, that he was sorry that he made them, does that mean that God here is acknowledging that he made a mistake? Or does it call the unchangeable nature of God into question? Maybe he changed his mind. We can see passages like Malachi 3.6. It says, I, the Lord, do not change. Or James 1.17 that refers to the Father of lights in whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. But did God change his mind here? Recognize that in all of this, it is human language and terms trying to explain the grieved heart of the eternal, immutable, all-powerful, all-knowing, omniscient God of the universe. The one whom that the prophet Isaiah testified that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. When we read that the Lord regretted that he had made them, he does not regret as we do when we see that we've made a mistake. The Lord's regret was a grief over the state of his most beloved creation. And that's clarified when the passage goes on to say, it grieved him to his heart. God loves his people. God loves his creation. He created the world, the universe around us as an overflow of the love that he has within himself. He wanted to share his glory with creation. Not that he needed anything, but that he wanted to share that with us. The regret that the passage attributes to the Lord is overseeing what man has done. And when we see that God is grieved, that grieving is not him mourning a costly mistake, but it is him at once both loving his creation, loving mankind, and then drawing from a doctor, Kenneth Matthews, he says, it entails also God's angry response at the injury inflicted by human rebellion. It is a righteous and holy indignation. He has created us, he has loved us, he has cared for us, he has designed us to bear forth his image in creation. We were good. And this is what we have done with his goodness to us. When God looks upon his creation and sees their wickedness, he regrets creating them. He is grieved creating them. He is both wounded and angry that we have done this with what he has given us. When we read of Adam, the penalty of Adam's sin was death. Today, the wages of sin is still death. And in our passage, God has determined simply to pay out the wages that his beloved creation has earned. God is not giving them something that they have not already purchased by their sin. And so he pays them out. Not in a vindictive or a malicious manner, but justly and rightly. 
God is hotly and wholly against sin and wickedness. But as God declares in Ezekiel 33, as I live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but the wicked that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Many of us can understand a little bit of this as parents. A parent does not take pleasure in disciplining his or her children, however warranted the discipline might be. So God disciplines humanity. For such discipline was the only means. It was indeed God's foreordained means, God's pre-planned means. God, before the creation of the world, knew that this flood was going to come, but it was his foreordained means of saving humanity. To leave the pervasive wickedness of Noah's world unpunished was unbearable and contrary to the will of God. God determined to utterly blot out such wickedness from his creation, for these created beings were no longer capable of or willing to fulfill their created role. No longer were they declaring God's glory, but they're profaning his glory. By grace, God preserved Noah as a righteous remnant, a last bastion against sin in the world. And this did not mean that Noah was without sin, but that he, like his forebears in the line of Seth, had called upon the name of the Lord even in his fallen estate. God had promised Adam and Eve a seed, and in preserving Noah, God keeps his promise. In 2 Peter, the apostle says, If God did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. As I said, though, as we gathered around the Lord's table, our focus this morning is not on the rescue that was coming. This passage is not about the rescue that was coming, the salvation that God had planned. And we need to, even as we did this morning, keep in the back of our mind that there is a rescuer, there is a promised seed, but first we have to reckon with the fact that we ourselves, our world today, is equally against God as it was in Noah's day. That's why we shouldn't be surprised when the world acts worldly, when the world acts sinfully, when the world acts against what Scripture would command, because our world is against God. 
The Bible means what it says when it says that all have turned aside. Together we have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Before we can skip to the good part of salvation and the gospel, we need to take time to both truly see and be properly grieved by the depths of our own sin and wickedness. That journalist who filmed that Mariupol documentary in his own footage, at one point he sits back and says, this is painful to watch, but it must be painful to watch. And just so we must watch. We must see the depths and the putrid wickedness of our own sin. We must be wounded by it. We must be so horrified at our own wickedness that we might become as utterly repulsed by it as God is. The same sin that motivates the most horrific things that mankind conceives of throughout history or today is the same sin that lives within us. For us to rightly call upon the name of the Lord, we have to see our need of him. And I think he often shows us how badly we need him simply by holding up a mirror where we may sometimes for the first time clearly see the horror of our own estate. Then we see that we truly deserve death. And we must believe that we do indeed deserve death. Let me say that again. We need to believe that we deserve to die for our sins, to die eternally for what we have done. We need to see that and we need to believe it. Otherwise, the cross of Christ will not have any meaning for us. The cross of Christ then becomes something that's good for or necessary for those really wicked people. We must believe that we do indeed deserve death. And then the death of Christ taking, its, taking our place, receiving in himself the penalty of our sins, begins to take on a right value in our eyes. The death of the innocent should always be abhorrent to us. That's why to hear of or to see the death of a child is so gut-wrenching because that is what we view as innocence. But beyond the innocent of innocence of a child, the death of Christ, who was the only innocent man ever to live, should be orders of magnitude beyond this. Our reaction when we hear of the death of a child should pale in comparison to our reaction when we realize that the innocent Son of God came and was crucified on our behalf. We should be utterly grieved that it is our sin that necessitated such a death. So grieved that to return to our sin, to willingly commit this very sin that we are saved from would become unthinkable to us. Before we move on to the good part, the good news, our next message that's coming up on this divine rescue that God would preserve Noah, that God would preserve us, his modern-day ark dwellers. We must see clearly that by our sin, we also deserved to be destroyed. 
And that is only by God's grace, it is only by his mighty saving arm that we are called out of the kingdom of darkness before he utterly destroys it. Only once we begin to see our sin for what it is, how evil it is, the cost it incurs, the vileness of it, only then can our salvation, the value of our salvation that Christ purchased, be appreciated. So this morning, I would pray that we would utterly refuse to minimize the sin that exists not only out there, not only in the world at large, but also within us. We ought to be outraged and disgusted against sin wherever we find it. We ought to be driven to put sin to death and to fight against it every day. We ought to be driven to put evil out, that we cannot cohabitate with evil, for to be cohabitants with evil is to find ourselves complicit in it and eventually find ourselves washed away with it. That's why Christians should be the most vocal parties against all of the sin and wickedness of the world. Christians should be the voice that cries out, no, this is wrong. But first, before that voice can have any real meaning, we ought to drive out and root out the sin that exists in our own lives, granting it no mercy and no quarter and wholeheartedly pursuing personal holiness. Unless this begins to sound like a call to just white-knuckle it, bear down and do the right thing and put that sin out of your life, it is only by the gospel. It is only by the grace of God that we can put such sin out of our lives. Noah was not sinless. David, the man after God's own heart, was not sinless. Every man, every Christian that we look up to throughout history, his or her hearts were just as stained with sin as the rest of the world and as we are. And yet they found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah, by his faith, that a gift from God, Noah was preserved. Humanity was preserved. The hope of a seed, a savior was preserved. So yes, this morning we ought to be cut to our hearts, grieved by the wickedness of our own sin. That we might call upon the Lord in faith and he would rescue us from our wickedness. And I am under no illusions. I know that when I start talking about our sin and our wickedness, every single person here, every single person who hears this message knows exactly what I'm talking about. And it's different for each of us. We know our sin. The Holy Spirit has put his finger on it and said this. That needs to be rooted out. And the moment we root that sin out, a new one, the Holy Spirit's going to go, now this one, and now this one. And the entire rest of our lives is going to be a journey of sanctification where we have been declared righteous in Christ, but then we are progressively made righteous as God sanctifies us. And only God can do that and work that in us. 
Before we close this morning, allow me one final word for I am compelled to remind us. Although we all know about the promise that is coming in our story here, how God vowed never again to flood the earth as he did in Noah's day, God will, when Christ returns once again and forever, wipe all sin and wickedness from the face of the earth. And when he does so, and no one knows when that will be, it is imminent, meaning it could be at any moment or it could be a thousand years from now, but we need to live like it's tomorrow or five minutes from now. When Christ returns, the judgment that follows will be every bit as final and more so than when God closed the door of the ark. The faithful inside protected, the faithless shut out and condemned. So in case you feel like maybe I'll deal with that tomorrow, Christ may be back tonight. You might not make it home alive. Take seriously the warning contained in our passage as to the seriousness of sin. Don't delay from turning from sin, and if you haven't already, don't delay calling upon the Lord for your salvation. Confess Christ as the Lord of your life and confess your sin before the Lord in faith, and he is faithful to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And beyond that, also to bestow upon you the righteousness of Christ. The world was and is utterly wicked and against God. Our hearts by nature, no matter how good we think we are, are naturally against God. You cannot outweigh your own sins. You cannot outrighteous your own wickedness. You must call upon the name of the Lord. You must confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, or you too will find yourself shut out and condemned. And so, may all we who would hear God's word find favor in the eyes of the Lord unto our salvation, even as we are told that Noah did. Let's pray. Lord, it is heavy and it is hard. It is uncomfortable to contemplate our own wickedness and our own sin. It is easier for us to pretend that it doesn't exist or pretend that it does no longer have any effect on our life, to hide it away. But you have not called us to easy. You have called us to be holy as you are holy. You have called us to take up our cross every day and follow you. You have called us to a higher calling as priests before you, 
to bear forth your name in all of creation, that we would demonstrate for the world your character. So Lord, for myself and for each one who is here hearing this, I pray that you by your Holy Spirit would drive a hot poker on that sin that is clinging to us that maybe we are clinging on to and make us abundantly aware of it. And that by your grace, by the work that only you can do, work in us to will and to work according to your good pleasure and put that sin to death. And do it again, and do it again, and do it again every day for the rest of our lives that at the end of our lives we might be found as ones who have been faithful, that we might be found as ones who have persevered unto the end in the fight against sin, that we might be righteous before you, knowing even now that our righteousness is only found in Christ. Lord, may you find us. May we find favor in your eyes. And may you call us unto yourself. And Lord, as we go forth this morning, may we be encouraged that as deep as our sin seems, as dark and unbeatable as our sin might seem. That in Christ, our sins might be removed from us as far as the east is from the west. That in the body of Christ broken, that our sin was paid for, the penalty of our sin was paid for, and that in the blood of Christ poured out, that our now forgiven sin is replaced by the righteousness of one who is perfectly innocent and righteous and holy. We thank you, Lord, and we glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.